0: As you take your seats, I remind you briefly of two things. Number one, the sermon hour is chiefly about the worship of God. Our worship did not stop when we stopped singing. It continues even now as we sit and listen to the word preached. In addition to that, I would remind you that the sermon hour is the time during the worship service of our greatest need. Our great need every Lord's Day is to hear from God. And this is something that is supernatural. It is not something that is in me with skill and a turn of phrase to communicate to you the truth of God that will change your soul. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of His Word that our hearts can truly be changed and conformed to the image of Christ. So as you continue in worship... Also continue in prayer in your hearts that you, like the song we just sang, might be able to hear the voice of God speaking through the text this morning. Well, if you're a guest with us, since last August, we have been in the letter of 1 Peter. That might sound strange, to some of you, but we preach expositionally here at Christ the King through the text. That means that we go one verse at a time because we want to think God's thoughts after Him. And so we find ourselves today in 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 10 and 11 today. 10 and 11, this will conclude a section that Peter has been speaking to us about Christ's sufferings and our suffering persevering to the end, our conduct in the church and outside the church. He'll conclude today by speaking about spiritual gifts and how we are to use our gifts, being good stewards of them, to serve one another. I will begin reading with chapter 4 verse 1 and we will make our way down through verse 11 and then I'll pray and ask God's blessing on our time. First Peter chapter 4. Verse 1, and remembering that this is the Word of God. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased or finished with sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they, that is the lost, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign or slander you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living. And the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all else, keep loving one another. Earnestly, "...since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied or manifold graces. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever, and amen. Let's pray. Father, we come again to this hour. We desire two things. First, as mentioned, we want to worship You. We want to praise Your name. We want to end as Peter does in this passage, with praise and doxology. But second, we come to you knowing that we need your help. We need the Spirit of God to move freely amongst us, to take these words from the text and what I say about them and make them effectual so that your people's hearts might be changed, conformed more to the image of Christ Jesus Himself. We know this is your holy will, and we know you're going to do this. So we trust, moving forward in this hour, that you will move amongst us and change hearts in whatever way you need to do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by way of introduction, I want to tell you a story. Back in 1954, Mr. Leland W. Sprinkle of Springfield, Virginia began work on arguably the world's most unique musical instrument. He toured a large cave formation in Luray, Virginia, and was fascinated at the cave's stalactites, which could produce musical tones when struck with a small mallet. Having himself worked at the Pentagon as a mathematician and electronic scientist, he began design of what is today known as the Great Stalactite Organ. The instrument itself covers a total of three and a half underground acres and is made up of hanging rock formations of various shapes and sizes, each meticulously chosen and precisely altered in order to produce notes from the full range of a four-manual organ console. Each of these bells have an attached rubber plunger which acts like the hammer of a piano, striking it just the moment a key is pressed on a specially designed, one-of-a-kind console. Leland put in all this effort to create the only underground harmonium concert with what is today, still in the Guinness Book of World Records, the world's largest musical instrument." Even though the organ is wired with sound amplification, the music the organ produces without it can be heard anywhere from in the caves underground 64 acres. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul compares the gifts of the Spirit to the parts of the human body. His point is that the various gifts, as different as eyes from hands or ears from feet. They work together for the body's health and well being Peter ends today's text with a doxology, a praise song to the Lord. The gifts of the Spirit are like hundreds of stalactites hanging from the Luray caverns. They might differ from one another in what they produce, but together when honed to the right pitch and played at the right moments, create the greatest symphony of praise that the church can produce. And Peter himself says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter foretold that the end of the old covenant age was at hand, and so the churches ought to live like they were nearing the end of this season of suffering that they had been in. He commanded sharp minds, he commanded strong love, and he commanded sincere hospitality. And in verse 10, he introduces the idea of spiritual gifts. This is the Greek word charisma, which means gift, usually the term used for the supernatural gifts of the spirit. The outline of biblical usage describes spiritual gifts as graces denoting extraordinary powers, distinguishing Christians, and enabling them to serve the church of Christ, the reception of which is due to the power of divine grace operating on their souls by the Holy Spirit. Now, when I use words like extraordinary or supernatural, I'm talking about any of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're not just talking about the ones that we think of when we think of healings or we think of miracles. We're talking about any Spirit-empowered gift. This is something that is extraordinary. It is not learned. And we'll talk about this a little bit more here in just a minute. First thing that Peter tells us is that every Christian receives a spiritual gift. He says, each one has received a gift. As each one has received a gift. Not everyone in the Jerusalem church could practice hospitality. In fact, it's arguable that most Christians in the Jerusalem church could not practice hospitality because of the poverty. But everybody in the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages is gifted by the Holy Spirit with at least one spirit-empowered grace for the church. Spiritual gifts, as I said, are not natural gifts. In other words, they aren't learned abilities. The ability to play an instrument or give a motivational speech or mix up a delicious uh, bacon and ranch salad, shout out to Lisa Blowers, um, are all fine talents. However, they are not spiritual Gifts, a spiritual gift is any manifestation of the Spirit in which He, that is the Holy Spirit, works through a human agent's given grace, making it effectual by His power in order to build up the church. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Almost identical language to what Peter says. All these, Paul continues, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions Who apportions himself to each one individually as he wills. I mentioned to you several weeks ago that I've been listening to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Um, In that story, each of the chemically modified embryos in the Central London Hatchery and Conditioning Center is designed for a life in one specific role. Some are meant to be scientists and engineers, Some laborers and factory workers, so on and so forth. The level of human engineering and global control is direful. You don't get a choice of what you want to be, it's chosen for you. And likewise, in any discussion of the spiritual gifts, we must begin with the sovereignty of Almighty God. He is the one who chooses the gifts, not us. And thank the Lord. I saw a YouTube video one time with a church full of congregants gasping in turn as a small child in a tuxedo on the sanctuary stage waved his hands around holding a microphone and screaming and shouting at the top of his lungs. The parishioners of the church actually thought that this was some spirit-wrought activity. But Christians... It's unfortunate to say, act this way all the time. We walk around like the child on the stage saying, oh, everybody likes me. Look what I can do. Pay attention to me. I'm a prophet. I'm a leader. I have the gift of preaching. So what if I'm a woman? The Spirit chooses what the church needs, and this is with intentionality. He also says, Peter, that is, that your gift was given to you so that you might serve others. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve others. What happened to the gifts of Peter's church members after they died? It's a strange question. What happened to the gifts of Peter's church members once they passed into glory? Well, those spiritual gifts are gone. They don't need them anymore. They operated as looking in a mirror dimly, but once they saw Christ face to face, there was no need for those gifts anymore. They were only meant for a time, and they were only meant to serve the church. How far removed from the concept of serving others are we today in the Western world in America? We spend our times as Americans trying to find ourselves Young people today, when they graduate from high school, go on these expeditions asking the question, who am I? That's the great postmodern idea of our day. I don't know who I am. I will think I'll take a six-month backpacking trip across Europe. I'll stay in lush hostels and I'll have promiscuous sex and sip steaming coffee-flavored soy drinks watching the Swiss sunsets. I don't think that's how you find yourself You might find herpes, but that's not how you find yourself. After more than a century of hating fathers, we now live in a bastardized world with no clue who we are, where we came from, and most importantly, to whom we belong. And so the the epitome of manhood, of womanhood, of humanity is in utility. We find our identity in our utility. I am what I do is one of the great postmodern ideas. But beloved, we can at least say this. When it comes to spiritual gifts, you are not your gift. You are not your gift. Have you ever wondered why the New Testament authors don't give us any clues on how to find our spiritual gifts? Where's the apostolic approved gifts questionnaire? There isn't one. There isn't one. The Bible assumes an identity with a local church where the Spirit of God will manifest gifts in the people of God for the good of that body of Christ, that local body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 again. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit of For the common good. you got to remember this. In the conversation of spiritual gifts, which the New Testament speaks quite a bit about different types of gifts and how not to use your gifts, but how to use them rightly, the big thing in the conversation of spiritual gifts is God's love for the body, not our love for its parts. The big thing is God's love for the body, not our love for... For the different parts. If you love Jesus, you're going to love His bride. And if you love His bride, He will pour out His Spirit on you so that you can bless His bride. This is precisely why 1 Corinthians 13, which Paul had just said, I told you about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Let me show you something that's even better. And he talks about love Of the body of Christ. This is why 1 Corinthians 13 comes after 1 Corinthians 12. Our gifts were meant to serve others. Peter goes on. He says, Each was given a gift, and that the gifts are to serve the body of Christ, and that we are to be good stewards of those gifts. When we make the gifts our identity, we can fool ourselves into thinking that they belong to us. My gift, my choice. You are not the master of your gift, but you are a steward of your gift. Consider, beloved, when God found you in the waste places of the outer darkness and brought you into the kingdom of His marvelous light, you entered a community of extensive and intricate industry. There was already an unthinkable level of production going on. However, there was a place prepared ahead of time for you in that vast New Covenant economy. The Father expected that in obedience to His Son, you would show up to work each day and perform the tasks assigned to you. Paul says as much in Ephesians chapter 2, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I ask you, church, did you find... And take your post. Have you found and taken your post? Did another kingdom citizen lead you to their station and you got infatuated with somebody else's job? Did some hireling of a shepherd intending to show you to your station and upon hearing what sounded like a wolf leave you alone in the streets with no clue where to go? Did you get your citizenship card in the new covenant community with the understanding that in this kingdom, nobody works. You just come to the Sunday morning bread line and get your rations. Beloved, we are stewards of the various gifts of God given to each one of us. Each of you has been given a grace from God to be used for His glory. The kingdom doesn't function as it should without each of the members... ...functioning as they should. You attend a weekly worship. You meet each week for prayer. You occasionally have time for evangelism throughout the week. But how are you stewarding your gift? Lastly, Peter says in verse 10, "...after all, these grace gifts bring glory to our King, not only in the services they render to the church but also in that they reveal His boundless character. The Greek poikiles means diverse, numerous, and various. You see it in your ESV where it says good stewards of God's varied grace. The King James uses the term manifold. Let me give you an example. If I were to ask you how many colors a human eye can detect, what would you say? There may be a nerdy nine-year-old who could say, ah, a total of seven. You know, the Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Others might say, oh, we can see an infinite number of colors. Well, there are more than seven colors that the human eye can detect, and we cannot detect an infinite number of colors. Our current research tells us that God created the human eye to take in about 1,000 shades of light. Within each of these shades, the human eye can detect or discern about 100 different red-green shades and about 100 different yellow-blue shades. So if you do the math, that makes about 10 million different colors visible to the human eye. I often see people standing at the store, you know, where you buy paint and you're looking at two colors and... You know, my wife will show me one like which one they look the same. But but the human eye can detect just slight differences between these different shades. Are God's grace gifts as varied as the multifarious spectrum of visible colors? I think so. Consider, for example, the books of the Bible. Paul writes nothing like Peter. And Peter writes completely different than Luke. And nobody writes anything like John writes. I haven't even mentioned Ezekiel. (laughs) And yet all of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. When someone's gift doesn't operate like ours or like we think it should, we assume they're getting it wrong. By the way, God doesn't hold you accountable for how others use their gifts, but how you use yours. This is not to say that people can't misuse a spiritual gift. They certainly can. But diversity in how the gifts function is, according to Peter, a feature, not necessarily a bug. Well, he goes on in verse 11 to speak further about these spiritual gifts. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I want to get to some application about the gifts, but let's examine some pieces of verse 11 here. Peter speaks of some kind of speaking gift. Your ESV translates it oracles. It is the Greek word logia, which is where we get our word logos or word from, and also some kind of service. So he speaks of, a speaking gift, and also a a kind of service gift. I've always been taught that this is just Peter mentioning two examples of spiritual gifts among the numerous gifts of the Spirit. Most theologians include this as one of the five gift lists throughout the New Testament. There's another one in Romans, there's two in 1 Corinthians, and then many argue that Ephesians chapter 4 contains a gift list as well. But it doesn't make much sense for Peter to mention the manifold number of gifts and then only give two. What he's likely describing here are two different categories of gifts, or you might say he's got two different buckets of gifts in mind, the service bucket and the speaking bucket. In this way, if we look at the text like that, the gifts can be numerous. By the way, that also reflects the two offices of the Church of Jesus Christ, you have over you elders who primarily function with speaking gifts and then you have over you deacons who primarily function with serving gifts. Also, this helps Christians identify what gift they may have and helps you better steward your gift. More on this in just a minute. Consider the gifts listed in the passages I just quoted. Think about speaking gifts for a minute. We've got teaching mentioned. You've got preaching Prayer, evangelization, exhortation, wisdom, knowledge, discernment, prophecy, tongues, and interpretation, and there may be others. In serving gifts, you've got giving, mercy ministry, helping, administrating, healing, faith, miracles, so on and so forth. Each gift falls into one of those two categories, either speaking or serving. You can also think of this like an engine manifold. The KJV uses the word manifold, and when I hear that word, I think of a motor or an engine. And you know motors, they have an intake manifold and an exhaust manifold. And the reason it's called a manifold is it brings in air through one pipe and then it divides it up into each of the cylinders of the engine so it gets air, spark, and fuel. And then once that explosion happens, there's an exhaust manifold or the individual pipes coming out of those cylinders which put all of that energy that's not needed out the backside of the vehicle. The speaking gifts are like the intake, the spirit breathing life into the church, and the service gifts are like the exhaust, that is the spirit produced results of that energy in the church. So how does that help you better steward your gift? Well, if you put the gifts into these two different categories, then verse 11 answers the natural question, what for? What for? Peter says that the speaking gifts have one purpose, and that is communicating the Word of God. Communicating the Word of God. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the Word or oracles of God. Teaching and preaching and exhortation and evangelism isn't about your flavor of the month, it's not about your hobby horse. Evangelism isn't about ending abortion. Exhortation is not about flattery. Speaking gifts are about communicating the Word of God. Theologian Tom Schreiner says, "...the injunction to speak God's words constitutes an exhortation to the speaker, to the one who's going to be using the gift. Hence, the phrase does not suggest that somehow the words spoken constitute new revelation from God." Rather, Peter wrote so that those who speak will do so in accordance with the Bible, in accordance with the Scriptures, not to suggest that the word spoken become part of the revelational deposit for believers. So let's say that somebody comes to you because you are known for giving good counsel. You have seen God work through you and you've been told more than once that the church has been helped through your wisdom or counseling or exhortation. You're aware of some clever turns of phrase and illustrations you often use that drive home a point. So when they come to you for counsel, what is your job? Give them the Word of God. Give them the Word of God. Be a good steward. God will use your personality in ways He won't use others. But the strength isn't in you. It's in the Spirit working through the Word of God. Speaking gifts. Let's think about service gifts for a minute. They can't be done in one's own strength. Peter anticipates this, knows that serving is difficult, and so he says, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. We're going to need energy from the Lord. Giving is hard. I've never heard anyone refer to giving as a form of entertainment. Mercy ministry can get ugly, and it's not always convenient. See the story of the Good Samaritan for an example. Helping is fun if you're on a little one-week youth mission trip where you dress in bright colors and repaint a house for some hell-bound soul while advertising to the neighborhood your good deeds. But real service takes power. And only God can give the right kind of fuel to run that motor. Christians with servant gifts can't hope for the energy shot of the limelight or having their deeds paraded before men. Using the engine manifold analogy again, service gifts are on the backside of the engine where they are less visible and they need the strength that comes from God. So, application. Let me give some big questions that you're probably asking. How do I find My gift or my gifts. The Spirit doesn't necessarily just give one to each person. You might have more than one or function at more than one at different times. How do I find my gift? That's probably the biggest question that many of you came asking today. Let me tell you four things you can consider when thinking about finding your gift. Number one, begin with repentance. And primarily, repenting of gift identity. It is a gift It is all of Christ. He died to give it to you, and it's meant for others. Notice, I did not say repent of trying to identify your gift. I didn't say repent of your curiosity about spiritual gifts or of trying to use what you think might be a gift. I'm saying repent of trying to be identified as the sum of who I am is this gift. In Christ, you are not a teacher or an evangelist or an administrator. You're a child of God and together we make up the body of Christ. I told y'all many times that my family in the evenings reading through Lord of the Rings. And my favorite character in the entire Lord of the Rings story and it's not even close is Sam Gamgee. He is the most profound example of servanthood that I've found in the history of fictional literature. Nobody is as based as Sam Gamgee. His picture hangs in the janitor's closet of every fantasy novel. (laughs) Throughout the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy, though, Sam never once draws attention to himself or to how he serves Frodo. The other characters see the gift in Sam, They call it out. They use it. Sam even thinks of himself as pretty much a fool. But even that doesn't affect his performance. It's all about his master and the mission to get the ring to Mordor. You want to know what your gift identity should be? The master and the mission. The master and the mission. You want to think about spiritual gifts? The master and the mission. That's what they boil down to. That's why Peter says they're there for serving others. We're going to build up the church because why? Jesus is taking over this world. We're going to get to it at the end of verse 11. To Him be glory and dominion. In order for Him to have dominion, the church has to play its part. And He is going to make sure that the Spirit of God works through the church, that we play our part. So, think about your gift under that context. The master and the mission. Number two thing. Application, how do I find my gift or gifts? Audience participation, audience participation. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir one another up or stimulate one another to love and good deeds. What do I mean? Call it like you see it, church. Call it like you see it. When you see someone speaking or serving well, Let them know about it. Tell them. Vocalize it. But what if I get it wrong, Chris? What if I didn't see their gift rightly and I inadvertently lead them astray? What if I lead them down the wrong path? I would say that this thought probably has less to do with your concern of misleading someone and more to do with the risk you run of being wrong. Get over your pride. Jeremy prayed a long prayer about it this morning. He was very helped by it. Get over your pride when you see somebody do something good for the church of Jesus Christ. Vocalize it. Your mom taught you to fill a glass with milk knowing that your initial tries would result in some spills. And what did she teach you? There's no sense crying over spilt milk. You're going to learn to pour the the glass the right way. Number three, diversify yourself. This one's going to sound a little counterintuitive diversify yourself. Our world today prizes specialization. Remember, identity equals utility. You are what you do. So I want to be the best at one thing. But I would say don't specialize at the start. When you're wanting to figure out what your gift is, don't specialize. Don't go out and find the gift that you want and name it and claim it. Don't Pigeonhole yourself early on. I would also say ignore Christians who have been walking with the Lord for years and seem to be really effective with a certain kind of gift. I'm not saying that they can't encourage you, but be cautious of coveting what God gave them and hasn't necessarily given you. First-year piano students have a long way to go before they get their own recital. As you gain maturity in Christ, you will naturally hone what God gave you. Be a good generalist before you specialize. The whole body of Christ, by the way, is commanded to exhort one another. Everybody is. We're all commanded to exhort one another, which is a speaking gift. And we're all commanded to serve one another, service gifts. So we will all have to, at times, operate in both buckets or categories. Finally, and this is the biggie, you repent, you listen to others and what they're encouraging you, you diversify, and lastly, localize your gift. This could be the main reason that Christians today, in my opinion, have no idea what their gifts are. We are a mobile people. We are selfish, antsy entertainment-seeking, ADD, what's-in-it-for-me kind of people. And when we get offended in a church, since it's hard to have patience and it's hard to love in a hard situation, we cover a multitude of sins by leaving and going somewhere else. By the way, this is effective in that a person doesn't have to deal with the sins of another's And conversely, you can continue to ignore your own. Moves may be necessary. Moves from churches may be necessary. A lot of people have communicated to me that their move away from a previous church was way overdue. But moves are difficult. They're very hard. In my landscaping business, I'm occasionally asked to do flower bed installs. We'll completely weed a bed and we'll trim the shrubs We'll get everything clean and then stage the plants for the client's approval. They'll come out and say, yes, I like where you've got everything placed. It's not infrequent that after the job is done and the invoice is paid and I'm off to do something else that the homeowner will call me back and ask me to move a plant from one location to another. I try and acquiesce, but I always give a disclaimer. If I move it it might die. If I move it, it might die. Transplanting comes with a cost. Even if a new soil is better than the old soil and you fertilize and you water and it gets better sun, the energy that it costs to move or transplant is substantial. And if you keep moving a plant and never let establish its root base, I can guarantee you it will die. And this is American Christianity. I like it, don't like it anymore, move. I like it, don't like it anymore, move. And over and over and over again, you never have a chance to establish a root base in a local community. People never call out your gifts. You never practice gifts. And so we've got a whole church full of people have no idea what they're supposed to do with the Spirit. They have no clue. This is the reason that we employ the use of covenant membership at Christ the King. These are the people that you've covenanted with to serve in this context, in this local community. God's going to give me a gift, and He wants me to use it here. So I'm going to covenant with people to practice that gift here. In addition, this is why our church mission includes belonging to a local community. We want to belong to Clinton... In that everybody identifies us as a Clinton church, and we want to be known here, but that can't happen unless we be long in the community. We stay here, we plant ourselves. So I would encourage you consider if you've moved from church to church to church to church to church, pray and ask God earnestly. I want to put down roots, I want to know how to serve the church, localize your gift. Lastly, Peter concludes with the purpose of all of this, the spiritual gifts and everything he's mentioned so far. He says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter has informed his church that the end of this leg of the race is near, so finish strong. He said, keep your wits about you, Love one another fervently and show joy-filled hospitality. Also, be a good steward of your gift or gifts. Here's the reason, the glory of God. You're probably all familiar with the catechism question. What is the chief end of man? And you would respond by saying, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy forever. We know this. We've all memorized this. But when we know it so well, it can have the unintended consequence of jading us to the truth that it reveals. Couple that with the fact that we live in a world where everyone is not seeking the glory of God, but their own glory. I want you to notice something. The church, in just the spiritual gift section that we've dealt with today, has been asked to do a lot. You get a gift, use it to serve others. And what credit does the church get? We don't. Did you notice who gets the credit? Jesus does. Jesus does. In order that in everything, God may be glorified not through the church, but through Jesus Christ. But through Jesus Christ. God has created the world to operate under a number of principles, many of which we are actively in the business as Christians trying to work around and undermine. One example would be, that scripturally speaking, it's the provider who gets the praise. The provider is the one who gets the praise. This last week in our Bible reading plan, if you're following that, we were uh, read from Proverbs 31. Most of you are familiar with the lengthy and seemingly unattainable list of virtues that this Christian android of a woman possesses. She's a hard worker. She runs a small business as well as a courier business. She's a household servant manager, a land investor, a horticulturalist, a crossfitter, a late-nighter, a fabrics expert, runs her own charity, weatherproofs her home, and I could keep going. And some people focus on all that she can do, which unfortunately makes Christian women at times feel inadequate, while others focus on the respect that she gets for her good deeds as if that were her goal. But the key to the excellent wife is found in Proverbs 31, verse 12. I'll begin with verse 11. It says, The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will not lack anything good. Why not? Because... She rewards him with good and not evil all the days of her life. The provider gets the praise. This is the heading for everything that this woman does. Her mission, her goal, her aim is to reward her husband. You may think of her value as praiseworthy, and it is. The writer of Proverbs says it is, but that's not what she's thinking about. Let me test your inner egalitarian meter for just a second. Who provided for the Proverbs 31 woman so that she could be so productive? Her husband. Where'd the wool and the flax come from? Where'd the money come from for the vineyard or to pay the servants that she manages? What about the distaff and the spindle that she works or the house she's overseeing? What about those children she has that say that she's a great woman? How'd she come about mothering those? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have that you didn't receive? Do you want some glory? Do you harbor resentment that God won't share His glory? Do you spend your time at church hoping that people will think much of you? I encourage you, repent. Repent. God loves you too much to let you have that garbage. Even if everyone here thought your gift was the most crucial gift and your praises were spoken frequently by others, it would not give you lasting happiness. Too small a goal. Resolve that in everything that you will do, you will work to reward Him who saved you. Jesus is going to get the glory anyway, whether we like it or not. He's going to get the glory. Peter concludes all of these thoughts that he's had to this point with a brief doxology. He ascribes to Christ, which is the nearest antecedent in this verse, two things. He says, To him, that is Christ, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Doxa, the Greek word, means glory. And that's where we get our word for doxology. And kratos is a word for power or dominion, and both are likely meant here. Let me give you just a few thoughts on being a Christian that produces doxology. The Redeemer will have His reward. And yet we so often don't want to praise Him. And I mention each week sins that keep us from living out the fullness of our new covenant life in Christ. I do this intentionally. Sin is the chief thing that keeps you from doxology, but I will, be honest, beloved, it's not the only thing. Many of you have recently dealt with, or have continued for some time dealing with really hard providences from God. We have been beset with sickness, it seems like, since the church is planting. There have been hospitalizations and surgeries. There have been financial setbacks and brokenness with extended family and friends. And we have those bodies to deal with. Those finite bodies that get tired and distracted and melancholy. So what do I do? Peter's church is under some pretty intense first century persecution from both Jews and Romans. And what does he teach them to do? Stop and sing. Stop and praise God. Why? Because Jesus is going to have dominion. Jesus will have dominion. I want to encourage you. Lift your voice out loud. No matter how bad you sound. Consider the words of David from Psalm 42 and 43, which were originally one psalm put together. Three times... In 42 and 43, he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. What is he doing here? David's coaching himself. This is a fight song. He's praising God to lift his soul and his eyes to the Lord. My wife says, that it's impossible to sing all five verses of amazing grace and still be in a bad mood. I think she's right. Sing, sing, sing to the Lord, a new song, daily, sing to the Lord. I began this sermon talking about the world's largest musical instrument. I talked about that great stalactite organ. It's not actually the world's largest instrument. Paul reveals what the biggest single instrument in the universe is, the church of Jesus Christ. He says, together, that is the church, may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 15 verse 6. That is an eternal Reality: The church was meant to be the grandest, most elaborate, most harmonious, praise-producing thing that God made. It can be, but each part has to play its part. Each piece has to work together with all of the others. Each gift has to be used in symphony with the rest of the church. If not, like the stalactites in the Luray caverns, that needed a bit of tuning, something may have to get shaved off. Pride has to be dropped. And we should be as quick to seek repentance as God accepts our repentance. Start giving yourself for the church, both speaking and serving. Call out the gifts you see in others. God will get the glory. He who provides will sustain, and He will ultimately get the praise. And thank the Lord that Jesus will have dominion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gifts that you give. But we confess to you that for a number of different reasons, perhaps many of us here don't even know what they are. We're not sure how to use them. We're not sure how to grow them. Lord, would you give us courage Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us insight that we might discern what it is that you have gifted for each person in this covenant body? That they might, as Paul said, with one voice, using all of their gifts in harmony for the upbuilding of the church, glorify God through Jesus Christ. We want to see this world taken for Him. We want to see it begin in Clinton and in Anderson County and then move to East Tennessee and everywhere over the world. Jesus shall reign. We know one day wherever the sun does its successive courses run. But Lord, help us, each of us here, to be good stewards of the gifts that you have given us for the sake of your bride, to be found faithful when you return. And please, grant that souls who do not know Christ who have never tasted the fullness of Christ, who have never seen the ugliness of their sin, and need repentance to find that even today through the gifts of this body working amongst the lost. It is in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.